Hello, everyone. This is Tricia, and I'd like to welcome you to the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation 35th Anniversary Podcast Series. As we look back over 35 years of both service to the bone marrow failure community and advances in treating these diseases, we are taking a moment to check in with patients and caregivers who have experienced combating bone marrow failure diseases, as well as physicians who are on the front lines. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Inga Hoffman. She is a University of Wisconsin health pediatrician who specializes and is director of pediatric bone marrow transplant and hematology. She is devoted to rare childhood bone marrow failure diseases and myelodysplastic syndromes in her focus. Inga Hoffman was recently appointed medical director of the PACT Program for Advanced Cell Therapy Initiative, which is being led by Dr. Jacques Gallopo, MD, in the Department of Medicine. And Dr. Hoffman's role with PACT will facilitate an important collaboration between the new GMP lab and pediatric bone marrow transplant program. Thank you, Dr. Hoffman, for being with us today. Well, thank you so much, Tricia, for having me and inviting me. And I'm really excited about this. And congratulations to your 35th anniversary. That's wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, we've seen a lot of changes over the years. So I, that's where I'd like to start with uh, a question for you. Um, when you started hematology and oncology, um, especially with your pedi- as you were looking towards working with pediatrics, what was the typical life expectancy or prognosis for these pediatric patients? Yes, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so when I started, I really started my uh, career in um, uh, sort of in in the two thousand early two thousand area and. Um, by then, um, we had already made some significant advancements uh, in terms of uh, treating a plastic anemia. Um, so um, just to take a step back, maybe when you look at your 35-year anniversary time span, um, before we had good treatments for plastic anemia, meaning immunosuppressive therapy, or bone marrow transplantation, uh, uh, most of those patients really died. They didn't have any treatment options, and they usually died from infections. And uh, before I started my career in the 80s, we started to have immunosuppressive therapy for patients with aplastic anemia, and that really changed the landscape on how we treated patients. Um, they either received immunosuppressive therapy or a bone marrow transplantation, and that has drastically improved their pretty dismal outcomes. Um, but since I joined the field, I think uh, it became very clear that there's still much room for improvement and uh, a lot of things we need to learn about the disease. Um, to date, we, we're curing most patients with aplastic anemia um, or get them in a remission that they are living a pretty normal life from their disease with either you know, a transplant or immunosuppressive therapy. But as I mentioned, that hasn't always been the case. And and I'm really excited about that change. Um, so maybe I'll pause here and, and see, um, you know, if you have any questions about that. Well, I'm, I'm also interested in... Um 
how you've uh, what it was like for um, MDS pediatric patients when you started in the early two thousands, and now we're in and we're in twenty nineteen. <laughs> has has the prognosis changed at all for pediatric MDS patients? Yes, I'm, I'm really excited about the field, uh, it, certainly for pediatric MDS, and that's my, my biggest passion, probably what I devote all my sort of energy to. Um, it's been really tremendous. When I started, we didn't really understand this disease at all. Most people probably believed it doesn't even exist, and MDS is a disease of the elderly, and um, I think there was a big learning curve to even recognize that MDS occurs in children. That is a real disease. And over the years, we have learned, um, you know, in the United States, as well as lots of work around the globe from Europe and Japan and other countries, that children with MDS really are quite different and behave quite differently than adults. And that has really shifted the landscape quite dramatically. And uh, first we learned that they are, um, you know, the outcomes are different. We can mostly cure them with a bone marrow transplant. And um, some patients um, have uh, more of a low-grade disease. Many of them actually kind of present more like a bone marrow failure. And we haven't really understood this so well in the earlier years and has been really with the advent of so many new amazing technologies that has really enabled us to look into understanding pediatric MDS. So over the last just even, I would say, five to ten years, not even ten years, we've really made huge progress to understanding that a lot of pediatric MDS has an underlying genetic cause, meaning there's a broken gene that is um, present basically at birth that gives the patient a predisposition, a risk to develop MDS. This was all not known when I started my, you know, my, my training or even was in fellowship. And that has really um, been an area of massive explosion. And, and it's a really exciting time to be in this field. And also a time where we finally find some answers for patients. This is always sort of the hardest part for me when I sit in front of a family and they always wonder, well, what, what made this come on? Of course, they worry about their other children and being able to slowly give, at least for some families, some answers or at least know what to look for has really shifted the whole paradigm how we approach MDS in children. That's that's remarkable. So I ha- I have a follow up question. Since since MDS stands for myelodysplastic syndromes plural, is there a are there particular types of MDS that are more common in children than others, or are we still on a learning curve for that? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great question. I think we're always on a learning curve, and there is definitely lots to be learned. Um, but yes, um, to answer the questions, are there some types that are more common? Uh, yes. In children, we more commonly see uh, the sort of low-grade myelodysplastic syndrome. And what I mean by that is that the children typically have low blood counts. 
Um, and their bone marrow or blood cells look abnormal under the microscope. That's what it means to have dysplasia. They look just, the cells look funny and not normal. And um, what we see is these abnormalities, and we see that they often have a more empty marrow, so it's not as full and crowded in the children's bone marrow than what we typically see in adult. And uh, the other interesting part is that we don't see as many of the leukemia-type cells in children for most kids um, that we call BLAST. Now, in adults, it's very common to have more advanced and aggressive disease that rapidly progresses to leukemia. In children, those happen as well. But the more common form we see is this low-grade MDS. We have a special fancy name for our children for that, which is called refractory cytopenia of childhood. Um, that is an entity I think we're still, there's a lot to be learned, what it means, uh, learning how children evolve in this disease and, um, and what the underlying reasons are there still a lot to be uncovered. Oh, that's, that is really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that. So my next question is, which of the treatments that have emerged since you started practicing in the past, you know, 10 or 15 years, have been the most, have made the most difference in the lives of your patients? Mm-hmm. Yes, maybe I'll answer this in, in two parts. For patients with uh, aplastic anemia, I think there's a lot of exciting things happening over the last few years. Um, one is um, we, we traditionally treated those patients with transplant, and that is still the standard of care for patients that have a matched sibling donor, meaning they have a sibling that could serve as a donor for their bone marrow transplantations. And those outcomes have drastically improved with the improvement of supportive care and us better doing transplants. But most nearly like 90, 95% of children or upwards do, do really get cured and do great. Um, the patients that didn't have uh, a sibling donor, so far we have uh, given them immunosuppressive therapy with um, medicines called cyclosporin and um, ATG. And um, the response rates have definitely gotten better. But one of the things that has been really exciting is the new medicine that helps stimulate platelet growth. It's called l which is a medicine um, that was first studied in adults. And we thought, well, maybe it helps with a platelet count at least. But nobody expected that it will improve the rest of the blood counts beyond the platelets. And when first studies were done in aplastic anemia, we saw that the whole bone marrow was responding and recovering. And really excited that is now available for uh, patients with aplastic anemia, uh, pediatric and adults. But in pediatrics, um, we're really eager. Um, we actually have a study open across a national, international consortium for pediatric aplastic anemia to treat those children with uh, immunosuppression plus ultrombopac. And that, I think, has been just like a really revolutionary uh, game changer for a lot of patients that we are able 
to add a new medicine. And the other part for plastic anemia patients is, um, it, so far we had always, like I mentioned, said, well, if you don't have a sibling uh, donor, then we have to tr- try the immunosuppressive medicine first um, because a transplant from an unrelated volunteer donor has a lot more risk traditionally for the patient, a lot more side effects and toxicities that could be lifelong. So we always tried uh, immunosuppressive medicines first, and if it didn't work, then we went to transplant. Well, that landscape has drastically changed too, and um, there is some data um, showing that perhaps an upfront transplant might be as good, meaning skip the immunotherapy and go straight to the transplant from an uh, unrelated donor if you have a very, very good, perfect match. And that is another study, um, the um, Pediatric Northoplastic Anemia Consortium, or the NAPAC stands for North American Pediatric Aplastic Anemia Consortium, is actually doing right now across the country to test... um, First of all, is it feasible to get a patient with a plastic anemia into a matched unrelated transplant very quickly? Um, uh, because that was always the concern. If we cannot get to transplant quickly, and typically taking a patient to an unrelated donor transplant might take a couple months. By that time, we would have already started immunosuppressive medications, and most providers were nervous to wait this long to start any treatment for the disease. But now, with this study, we're really looking, and and it looks we're quite successful in doing so, getting patients to transplant very quickly. And over time, we're hoping to learn, well, is, is perhaps... We, we don't know what is better, going to transplant after the immunosuppressive therapy fails, or perhaps if you have a perfect donor, you can do that right up front and you will do as well. So the expert community is really not clear on which one will be better. And we felt as a consortium across the country, that was really important to look at this carefully so we can make the best decisions forward for our patients. Um, So that was a long answer for plastic anemia, and I'm happy to speak a little bit about those patients with MDS as well. Just a a little bit about MDS, that would be great. Yes. Yeah, so so for MDS, I think the biggest difference has been um, the treatment still remains um, transplant is the only curative therapy we have. And there's certainly a lot of improvements in the transplants we do, how we do the transplants um, in terms of um, the donors and the improvement and the medications we use. The biggest excitement and I think the most important one that we as the expert community of pediatric uh, bone marrow failure MDS experts always stress, which is so important going back to that we are understanding more about the disease and we are discovering that there's more genetic reasons that people get this disease. And why is this important for treatment? Well, for transplant, this is a critical important factor because now we understand if there is a genetic reason and there is a potential risk for some patients, not everybody perhaps, but for some people that there's other affected family members We want to be very cautious to evaluate that before we use them as a donor. 
So that's a really important part where the genetics and the genetic counselor and expert teams are really critical in making the best decision for the patient. And um, now that we also learn about more of these diseases, we understand that maybe because there's genetic risk factors, some patients might have other risks and toxicities that we need to monitor them for. So even when they're done with their treatment, that we really give them a good long-term chance and monitoring to take care of all of their overall health. So while there isn't any new medicines, I think these are really drastic, important changes, though, that we need to take into account so that we can improve the outcomes of the transplant and cure more patients. That That is really good information. I appreciate that answer. So finally, I'd like to wrap this up by um, asking you if you had a piece of advice that you would like to give um, a pediatric family or any uh, marrow failure patient, but particularly the, the family of, of the pediatric patient, was there one piece of advice or one um, thought that you would like to uh, give to these patients and families? Yes, um, yes. Well, first of all, you know, our heart as, as pediatric providers really goes out to those families. And and um, I, I hope they can see that we really care. That's why the community is coming together. I think they often feel very lonely. I encourage them to and encourage you to reach out to other families and communities, um, either through the Aplastic Anemia and the S Foundation. There's Facebook groups where people get together and with the intent to be really supportive and know that you're not alone in your journey because it can feel very lonely. And the other part in that is don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, as as parents, I'm a mom of two boys and, you know, as parents, we have instincts, especially moms have very good instincts, but that's, that's our job to advocate for our children. And if that means we have to ask a lot of questions for you to understand exactly what is going on with your child, um, I encourage you to ask those questions. Don't ever feel bad. Um, Every provider should be encouraged by those questions and hopefully give you some clarity. Also, don't be afraid to ask. Um, This comes up often. And, And maybe just sharing my philosophy on on when patients ask for a second opinion. I think families often feel bad because they don't want to offend the provider. I would say in our pediatric bone marrow failure MDS community, we are pretty close-knit kind of community of expert physicians. And we are always delighted to help, whether it's, um, you know, uh, one patient goes from one colleague to another it's a good thing to make yourself whatever it takes to make yourself feel confident and comfortable in a regardless it will be a difficult situation and it will be a scary situation and you don't want to hear maybe the information you're getting from your physicians because your child is ill but we always want to encourage you to feel comfortable to ask for another opinion so that you get your sense of peace to making a good decision that feels good in your heart to move forward and um, and we are, as expert community, happy to help other fam- families and physicians, meaning if we can partner with your local pediatric hematologist, 
uh, most of them appreciate when, you know, the expert community comes around and we can ask questions. We all need help. I ask my <laughs> colleagues all the time in areas that I'm not an expert and I'm grateful for that. And I think that's how we should operate. So I want to really encourage families. You're not alone. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to, to reach out for help. Um, I think that's that's important. That is so excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Hoffman, for sharing your insights with us today. And oh, I, you're welcome. And I thank all the listeners for this segment as well. There's more to come, which you can find on aamds.org with all of our podcast recordings. Until next time, so long.